Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten, the still the only podcast that reviews horror films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it's a niche we've carved out for ourselves. We own it. Eventually, one of those big corporations is going to come in and, you know, SEO us to death. But for now, it's us. We're the ones. We're doing it. We're two Matts. Matt Monagle, Matt Donato. We're making it happen. How you doing, buddy? Doing good. I always say doing good. And, you know, whether I'm not or am doing good. So I'm just going to keep going with that every single time. We're not going to change that answer. Well, are you doing good or are you doing well? No, it's good. I don't, I don't want to do well. I do good. Well, but if, you, if you're doing good, it, it says that you are you are actually doing good things like volunteering and stuff like that. If you're doing well, it means you individually are, are, are in a good and happy state. Oh, yeah. I'm doing horribly, but I am doing good. Okay. Okay. So Donata's doing charity stuff. Ben is miserable. That sounds about right. Um, thank you for listening to this episode. I, we're really, really excited to talk to today's guest because we sort of have a theme on the show where we're like, Specifically, I'll say that if uh, Fangoria Magazine has a managing editor, we want him on the podcast. We're two for two so far. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, but more importantly, she's a friend. She's brought a really good movie for us to talk to. Donato, let's uh, let's introduce our guest and, and let's hit it. Punch it, man. Let's go. Absolutely. You, you've probably heard our guest cackling below <laughs> with muffled laughter so far. Um, I've known this guest for quite a long time. Good friend. We've, we've spent much of the quarantine talking and... Uh, very, very happy to be doing that. So now having to have her on the podcast as well. It is Ariel Fisher, the evening news editor for Slash Film and the managing editor of Fangoria, the magazine. Ariel, welcome. Thanks for welcoming me, the mats. Uh, it's nice to be here and it's great to finally actually be able to do a podcast where I get to talk about, you know, what we're going to talk about because, yeah, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I think I might have just <laughs> spoiled your introduction almost, but probably not. I don't know. Oh no! People, I, p- people can see the title on like Spotify or whatever else. So this is this slumber party massacre too. We're not we're not being coy, <laughs> but but we're gonna get yeah we're gonna. What get are into our the rules about swearing? By the way, we're pro swearing. Oh okay, cool. So yeah, Some, fuck it then. <laughs> sometimes even unnecessarily, we got to earn that. Like every time I Matt and I toggle that little button that says "Is this a podcast for children?" and we have to click no. You know, we, we feel like we want to earn it because it's boring if we don't swear, but still have to label, label it for mature audiences. Very fair. Yes. So I'm excited to get to talk about Summer Party Massacre, too, because um, if you know anything about me in relation to horror, I am obsessed with this movie. <laughs> we don't. I feel like just by the nature of this show, we get to talk about a lot of people's favorite films, but we don't always get to talk about like their cornerstone movie, right? Like the movie that somebody is known for. We don't get to talk to, um, you know. I'll never get to talk about Black Coat's Daughter on here. We're, okay, Donata, you've had like three movies on here. That, that I was going to say, I, I guess I hit fun. the right niche in my watching profile alone, where like half the movies that I want to talk about end up here anyway. I mean, like we, we, we did Demon win like episode two. But I mean, the fun part is, too, we don't always get to look back this far uh, in the podcast mm-hmm. because we are trying to focus more on the 2000 films, uh, you know, 2000 plus era. But, you know, it's always fun to go back because... I don't know. I feel like horror films have been forgotten for a very long time. And a movie, especially like Slumber Party Master 2, everyone knows the original. I don't know how many people actually know this one outside of our little bubble. If you want to talk about like the horror sphere, the horror bubble. Like, yeah, I know about this because it's like a cheesy Midnighter musical slasher. But yeah, it's, it's good to be able to look back sometimes. I like that. But we're not going to talk about it quite yet because we have a template, a format for the show. God damn it. And we're going to start by getting to know our guest a little bit, um, because some of you, this might be the first time that you're you know, meeting, quote unquote, air quotes, meeting Ariel or a lot of the work 
that Ariel does is kind of behind the scenes and support roles for some of these cool publications. So you might not get to see her bylines as much, but like Ariel, your hands are all over all the really good horror criticism and journalism that's coming out right now. So let's let's start with kind of, you know, the question we always ask about your early days of horror. What were the first movies that you remember? What were the first experiences that were formative and made you think like, oh, this is a genre that's that's interesting and exciting for me? Um, I that answer is is always Jaws. Um, Jaws is one of my most formative movies. Uh, I remember hearing it before I ever actually watched it because my brother, who was four years older than me, used to, you know, he got to watch all the scary movies before I did. So, you know, my parents had to kind of keep me occupied while he got to watch like Carrie and Poltergeist when he was like eight to 10 and I was still way too young. And so I remember hearing Quint get eaten before I actually saw Quint get eaten and I'd like be doing puzzles in the dining room with my mom or my dad and they'd like switch out now and then just to kind of try and distract me, but I'd hear Quint like screaming in the other room. Um, and on top of that, I just, you know, we always had something scary on. My parents always really liked and appreciated certain horror movies. So things like The Changeling, for example, uh, was also another mainstay. That was when I grew up watching and just kind of became this source of, this weird source of comfort like it just, it became like the norm for me to have those things around. Um, and oddly enough, it was actually martyrs many, many, many years later that kind of made me go, oh, wow, we can analyze this. We can talk about this. That was kind of the, the like awakening moment to think that there's so much more to it than I had initially anticipated, right? So, but it's been a very long process pretty much since I was about four five years old of getting into horror in some way, shape or form. And even with smaller stuff, like more kid friendly things like, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas is technically very it's it's kid horror and things like that. So mm. that was always there. It was kind of ever present. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a journey a lot of folks can relate to. You know, they watch Jaws and then something, something and then Martyrs. That's like the that's the <laughs> the path that most of us go through. Right. It's just like <laughs> just going from from marijuana to like the hardest possible drug possible in the horror world. So I, I respect that a lot. So when you were so when you were little, you said that your your family um, were, if not horror fans, and certainly horror appreciating, maybe they, they mm -hmm. kind of had stuff going on a lot. Um, as you was how did that kind of play into your social nights you know slumber parties since we're talking about a movie about slumber parties and friendships <laughs> and stuff was this something that you were like i'm into this thing is it cool you found friends that were like-minded or was it always just something you kind of had on the back burner oh no it was always something i had on the back burner i did not fit in i was always the the odd i was the odd duck i was the ugly duckling that nobody liked i didn't get along with anybody well like nobody got along with me I was weird to everybody. Um, on my for my thirteenth birthday, I remember this ex explicitly. I wanted us to watch, um, like we had a slumber party, and we I wanted us to watch The Exorcist and uh, The Changeling because I those scared the crap out of me, and I loved them, and I thought they were super good. And the all of the girls that were invited, none of whom really liked me, but kind of just came out of a weird sense of obligation, kind of uh, couldn't stop laughing at it and at both of them. And we're like, oh, this is so boring with the changeling. And oh, my God, look at her face. That's so stupid. Or that's so funny with the exorcist. And I'm sitting here like, what is wrong with you guys? This is terrifying. What 
where, what? I didn't understand. And that was always kind of the way of it. But then again, I was also like a 12 year old kid who liked to listen to Jethro Tull while everybody else was listening to Eminem and it did not fit in at all. So that's fine. Yeah. I feel like the, a lot of horror folks, I feel like march to the beat of their own drum as children. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm sure that there's some sort of deep psychological dive that we could do about our industry and the people that work in it or write about it. But it is it is something that is, it, it's a strange thing to advocate for until you're a certain age. And then at a certain age, I think it's just sort of like, oh, it's fine. Like this is what, but you know, I, I, I know looking back on my own experiences, the kids that were like into like metal and horror, I was like, those are the weird kids, right? I'm not one of them. I'm a normal kid. I do normal <laughs> kid things like play the Star Wars customizable card game. Turns out I wasn't a normal <laughs> kid either, but yeah, but I, I I remember looking back. It's like I knew those kids in middle school, and I always thought like, oh, those you know they're 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 doing something that I have no interest in. And eventually, I sort of circled all the way back and ended up where they have been since they were kids. Well, I mean, the appreciation level is another thing that you know, as Ariel just talked about, you you show horror movies to some people, and whether the response is like abject disgust or laughing at it and being like, this is dumb, this is boring. You kind of get that sense immediately that, again, as Ariel has said, you know, you're thinking on a different level. You're thinking about horror in a way that no one else does. And that's that bonding factor, I think, that comes with horror fandom. Like, you know, horror fans around, you know, they finally found their own people when that happens. And you're able to watch that movie. And when you're digesting the changeling and digesting how dreadful and terrifying it is, I mean, Ariel and I write Scariest Scene Ever for Slash Film right now. And it's like we just did the changeling. And me at 32 watching the changeling for the first time i can still go back and is it quote unquote you know like jump out of your seat scary i mean sometimes i would argue it can be um i can also see that people look back on it and like it's old it's outdated and have those like preconceptions about horror so there are just so many things that uh i'm just very happy that I have found people that I can watch horror with. And I'm sure we all have that, like no longer laugh at us or, or think it's boring or think it's the dumbest thing ever. It's also getting to watch it, like specifically with something like the changeling, getting to watch it and see certain scenes. And then you get to reenact that Leo pointing meme and be like, ah, that was an insidious mm-hmm. or, Oh my God, I saw that. That that's, that was used in the ring afterwards. And like, you can see it's no longer just that it was this, you know, old, outdated, boring thing, but you can see how it's traced its way through all the other things that you love and how its fingerprints are on everything. And then you have a different appreciation for it. Now, granted, at 13, I did not have that, to, to be fair, but alas. <laughs> I wonder if there's an argument to be made that one of the things that makes the horror community unique is that we have fewer touch points than than other modes of cinema. You know, I think that that if you're talking to people that are that are cinema fans, they might have come up through world cinema, particular countries' um, output, or any one of like the studio or non-studio films from any point over the last sixty years, seventy years. It's it's such a big set of stuff that like you walk into a room with cinephiles, you start talking, it's going to take you probably a while to find like formative common ground. But a lot of horror fans, like every horror fan you sit down and talk to there's probably six or seven movies that they all had in common because those were like the the titles that broke through the noise, right? In order for something to have been a blockbuster video title, something that you could get away with renting, it had to be on the caliber of like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th or something. It had to be that recognizable, which means since there was an access issue when we were all little, we all kind of came up with the same films and we went on from there. But it means like I, I go talk to 
to anybody and I'll be like, oh, Halloween, right? And they're like, yeah, Halloween. And we're like, okay, there's just, there's such a smaller canon of movies that really influenced us at a young age. And that changes how we approach the genre, I think a little bit as adults. Or even at an older age, like even now, if you're, if you're coming to horror later in life, there are still the, like the textbook touchstones. Mm -hmm. So yeah, very much to that point. Yes, I agree with you. I think it's funny to kind of equate that to when I talk to people and, uh, I'm from New Jersey, so uh, New Jersey has- Are you? Holy shit, you've never brought that up before. (laughs) So New Jersey has very, uh, you know, it has its landmarks, it has its uh, easy to tell places, but where I grew up is kind of off the beaten path a little bit. So when like I find someone from Jersey, like, oh, where are you from in Jersey? I always go like, well, I'm by New York City. They're like, okay, what what county are you in? And I go like, well, Morris County. And then like, I drill it down from there. And I kind of do that with horror fandom too, that like you were kind of just saying where it's like, I start with that. You start with that one movie. You're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I love Halloween. And it's like, oh, I love Halloween, too. And you have that first one. It's like, oh, okay, so now we can go the slasher route. And we like, oh, well, I don't know. I really like Hatchet, let's say. And I think Hatchet did a good job, like, taking the slasher into the modern world. And then, like, you can start going down and drill it down even more specific. And it's so fun to drill it down and find how different, like, everything is on that third or fourth or fifth level versus uh, that first one of just, like, let's start talking about Halloween. And all of a sudden you're talking about X like laid to rest or some insane, like the mutilator or some insane slasher from here or there. <laughs> Those aren't usually the way my conversations with new people go, Donato, but I'm, I, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate and love you for it. Well, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. Like Ariel said, I'm like, Oh, I love Jaws. You love Jaws. Have you seen martyrs? See, that's Just not, get that's right not how point. I go. Get right to nope. the point. No messing yep, around. No fucking around. Nope. To you be fair, that is not how it usually goes. That is, however, how I got my first writing gig as a volunteer contributor for the McMaster Silhouette at at McMaster University, was I bonded with my editor over, who would become my editor over the fact that I was able to sit through Martyrs and he couldn't. So (laughs) he was like, okay, you're hired. Do you like Steven Spielberg blockbusters? Would you like to try French extremism? (laughs) (laughs) Like, how did we get here? What left turn? I think the way that we got there was legitimately through talking about uh, the was talking about TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival's Midnight Madness section, and like asking me, "What are some of your favorite movies? Do you have specific genres that you really like?" And me saying horror, and then having just said like, "Oh, the previous year I saw Martyrs," just following its uh, its premiere at Midnight Madness at TIFF. And so then he was like, oh, man, that's like hardcore. Did you see the did you see inside, too? And like that was one of those like we went down a rabbit hole because it started with like the greater cinema and went into Mm. horror and then went down this niche. And it, yeah, went to New French Extremity. And that was that's always a fun place to take people. It's light. It's a lot of levity. (laughs) You, You grew up in Canada, correct? Yep. Grew up in the burbs around Toronto, Richmond Hill and Thornhill, technically. So I think we think of of the Canadian film industry and the American film industry is is pretty permeable, right? Like a lot of back and forth between the different films and especially, um, you know, Canadian output, early Cronenberg and things like that, super influential to the horror genre. How do you think kind of um, approaching, because I know a lot of really, really talented writers and they all seem to be from Toronto and surrounding areas, which is, I don't, I don't know why that, that seems to be a commonality. But what um, what do you think or did do you think that there was any kind of a different perspective you had, especially coming up as a horror fan growing up in Canada versus the United States? And now you've spent time in both places, so you might be able to kind of weigh in on that. Honestly, I don't know that I can 
too much weigh in on it just because my experience in the U.S. is largely limited to like the last year that I've been living in Michigan with my husband. So that's, you know, like I've been to the U.S. prior. I've been to other places, but I haven't spent so much time in like, like my experiences with Blockbuster and everything as a kid and looking at the movies on the shelves that, you know, they looked scary. So I was interested in them. That's all stuff that happened in like the suburbs of Toronto and the GTA. So that's, I, I couldn't, I, I can't equate that to what it would have been or what it could have been in the US. But my growing up with horror was, I'd imagine it, it wasn't too dissimilar from any other suburban kid lit, uh, like who would have gone to either a Blockbuster or your local video store. Like there were others that we went to that weren't, you know, chain stores or anything. But um, in terms of like association with the content, it it it's it was probably all the same as i started getting a little bit older though and my brother started introducing me to he my brother is the reason why i started going to midnight madness at tiff and he took me to my first midnight madness screening in 2006 and that was at that was uh, severance um and that started what became a decade long tradition for us until he moved away to do his phd in texas and then it kind of it became less less consistent it wasn't every year but we would see at least one movie a year at midnight madness um sometimes two and inside was the next one that i followed up after severance so we went like right in and that that kind of opened that opened a floodgate for me and changed the way i i saw horror and the way i engaged with it because it wasn't just limited to what i had access to at video stores it was access to you know new stuff and different things and stuff from different parts of the world that I maybe hadn't quite considered before. I'm also, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I guess I'm a bad Canadian. I am not a gigantic Cronenberg fan with a couple of exceptions. Then again, I also don't really like, I appreciate, but I don't like Blade Runner and that tends to piss a lot of people off. But, you know, I love The Fly. I think The Fly is one of the greatest, it's one of the best horror movies ever made. And it is hands down one of the top five best horror uh remakes ever made um i don't know that any that much i don't like anything else he's done quite as much as i like the fly Mm -hmm. some stuff is close but like i really like crash but it's that's a horse of a different color but also yeah no not all canadians are just constantly you know it's you don't turn on city tv and see cronenberg going all the time maybe like after midnight but okay so my 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 in my head, my image of uh, 80s and or 90s and early 2000s Canada is a non-puritanical utopia. <laughs> might ha- might have to shake that when it comes to media consumption. Yeah, well, yeah. You've you've talked a bit about um, you know starting to write in college. When did you start to really hone your craft as a writer, as a both a film critic and an editor? When did you find yourself being like, okay, I have thoughts, I can put them down on paper, probably more metaphorical than literal paper. And there's, there's an opportunity and an interest in, in, in people hearing from me and hearing what I have to say. Uh, then honestly, that was when it started it. That, I don't know if it's the ADHD or what, but it's kind of the way I've always been where when, once I like wrap my head around something and it's, Oh, I can do this. Oh, I like this. It's, it's, it's kind of all or not or nothing. Hmm. It's just kind of dive straight in and focus on it and hyper fixate on it. Um, for some things, those wane. This has never waned. That was, I had always loved talking about movies and analyzing movies and scrutinizing them and in various different ways for 
um, a bunch of different reasons. And a few friends and my brother and everything had kind of pushed me for a long time to like volunteer to write for the arts magazine through the McMaster silhouette. It was called Andy. And I was so reluctant. I thought I wasn't good enough. Uh, My brother was also a writer and I thought, well, this isn't for me. This is his thing. He's the writer. I can't do this. So I fought it tooth and nail. I refused to go and even put my name up as a volunteer because the worst thing that could happen is they'd say no. And, you know, to quote Marty McFly, I just don't think I could take that kind of rejection. Hmm. And um, a few friends, like my roommates and everything at the time kept encouraging me. And then I was in a meeting with my guidance counselor at the time. And she was like, okay, here's what you're going to do. Because I didn't know what to do after university. I was like, I don't want to do a graduate program that feels wrong. And that's what everybody else was doing. And I'm like, I, none of this feels right. I have no idea where I want to go. I have no idea what I want to do. But I know that more school feels wrong. And she was like, okay, here's what you're going to do. As soon as you're done here, you're going to go down to the McMaster Silhouette office and you're going to put your name down to be a volunteer writer. Like no ifs, ands, or buts. And I, I immediately was like, well, yeah, but maybe I should have more time to do blah, 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 blah. She's like, nope, Ariel, no, you're going to go. You're going to do this now. It's like, Okay. And I did. And the first piece I wrote was uh, about horror remakes, actually, because I, I started around uh, Halloween. It was it was in October and I was in print like this was all like a print publication. And that was it. I had the bug. And then I kept writing and I kept trying to look for different stories. And I actually was picked up by the Canadian University Press, uh, one of my articles that I wrote about James Franco before he hosted the Oscars saying that he was like this new renaissance man. And then he hosted the Oscars and really let me down. So (laughs) that was fun. But, you know, and from there, it kind of just, this became a thing that I had to do in whatever capacity that I could. It's just what I knew. And sometimes it was really hard and I worked my ass off. Most of it was unpaid. Um, I started out working for a couple of local publications. This one publication in the UK started uh, getting me to write for them a little little bit. Um, And I also wrote for a publication based out of New York. All of that was unpaid. And this was also while working day jobs um, and going to, well, no, this would have been, yeah, this would have been during and after university. Um, And then I left my full-time job that I had at the time when I was work, I was working at a hospital actually, because I was like, no, I need to make this my thing. I need to pursue this. Mm. And I was, you know, living below the poverty line and I was getting food from uh, food banks and stuff and I was not doing well and I was hauling ass and I was just doing the best that I could. Uh, and eventually once I was able to get my, my shit in check, like, you know, anxiety disorder and everything, I started being able to actually live in this life instead of being crippled by the other problems that would prevent me from doing what I was capable of. I don't want to say it's all I know how to do because I I know I know how to do a bunch of stuff, but this is just the thing that's been the most natural to me. And throughout that process, I actually it was uh, Justine Smith, who's from uh, Quebec. She's a good friend of mine. I I was writing with her at a website that is now pop optic and she actually gave me my first editing job. She, she brought me on as a, uh, an assistant editor and that was some of my first experience. It was, it was rough, not because of her, because of some of the writers who did not like being edited by a younger woman, but Mm -hmm. it was, 
a learning experience. And I, yeah, the more I've done it and the more I've done editing, especially and getting to work with writers as opposed to necessarily just creating my own stuff, I've found this extra different pocket. And especially with when doing that with horror, because you get a lot of people who aren't sure if what they're writing is correct. Like there are so many rules in horror. We have this, these guidelines, but at the end of the day, those can be changed. And we all have varying perspectives. Our unique experiences in life kind of give us these different vantage points and getting to work with writers who ha- who clearly have so much that they want to say, but don't necessarily know if they're allowed to say it, let alone if they are able to, and to be able to give them that nudge and be like, no, you can, I see what you're, what you're going for. Let's help you hit that bullseye. That is, I love doing that. That is one of my favorite parts of the job is just getting to nurture that little idea egg. (laughs) Idea egg. You're letting letting the egg hatch and then the face hugger grabs on and the circle of life. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. All that nice stuff. Yeah. I mean, like that's (laughs) the thing that comes along with, um, the horror community and everything we said about like horror people finding each other and the bonding sense. Um, I don't know. I think one of the, the, what you just said, Ariel, about someone having an idea and thinking that they might not be able to say that idea or maybe hesitating because maybe it's not worth putting that idea into the world. Uh, because we also know that the horror community can be a very troubling, uh, kind of frustrating place at times. And what? <laughs> right, exactly. So like, I, I you know, I know Monaco and myself, you know, what we kind of look for in pieces is the things that we're not going to read anywhere else because we want those ideas. And the whole thing is like, I kind of feel like if you're pissing off all the right people with your writing, then you're doing a good job. And like, no, you shouldn't write to piss people off. But if you have one of those takes that like is new and is fresh and a new idea that hasn't been said before. And, you know, maybe that's because we're analyzing films in a new way at this point. That's that's what makes all this rewarding again. Like that's what makes it all fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And so you now in your capacities as both the managing editor of Fangoria Magazine and working at, on the team at Slash Film, you work with a, a lot of writers. Um, you get to do that a lot. Got what Donato and I kind of like, whenever we're working with pieces, we always talk about in terms of gear, right? Like you help writers find that that next gear, that like the thing that takes it from being fast to like, oh my gosh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I... I what what kind of what are uh, advice or what kind of um, things do you think that somebody that might be getting into this industry or even somebody that's a veteran of this, of this industry can do to help an editor like you um, get the most out of the the pitch, get the most out of the concept that they're working on? So, what can a writer do to help me help them? Kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, like what help some... me to help you. Help me exactly to help you. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, that's a that's a tough question because the answer isn't simple. Um, but the only way to present the answer is to do it bluntly, and that is be fearless. It's you, and that's not easy. That is not easy. I am not fearless. I am fucking terrified ninety nine percent of the time of my own goddamn shadow half of the time. But like, it's it is really the most encouraging thing that I can say is just. If you look at something and you think, I haven't seen anybody talk about this, instead of kind of training yourself to think, well, that must mean no one wants to, instead say, that means nobody has yet. 
and there is room for this. You don't have to base all of your ideas on these kind of pre-existing notions. The whole way we come up with new and interesting things to talk about and new and interesting ways to look at things is by jumping outside of the box. Otherwise, you know, we get like the same thing a million times over. I always think of the like my perfect example of this, and I have thought about this. And anytime a question like this comes up, I always think about her specifically, uh, Lex Berscuzzo, who now writes for us at Slash Film. Uh, she wrote for me when I was editing at Shutter uh, for for the Bite, and she had pitched me on writing about um, the Blair Witch Project, and it was around the anniversary, and it was her idea was you know why it's important to the found footage subgenre. And I was like, okay. Because she was speaking about it with a lot of conviction. She was clearly very invested in it. But I was like, I've, and I flat out told her, I'm like, I have read that piece every year since it came out. I have, I have seen that piece a million times. Why is this important for you? Because clearly it's important for you. So try and dig into that and tell me what about this matters to you? Why does the Blair Witch Project matter to you? And she sat with it and she thought about it. And she came back to me a couple of days later with a new pitch. And it was writing about uh, Heather, the main character from the vantage point as being this kind of symbolic character, this representation of female filmmakers in horror or women filmmakers in horror and how they are left to carry all of the weight. Uh, They get all of the flack And they're to blame for everything that goes wrong, even when it's microscopic. And they have to haul ass to try and get there. And it's always their fault, no matter what. But they're forced to be that ambitious by virtue of not being good enough by virtue of being women. So it was, it wound up being perfect. And I was like, this is it. I have not seen that piece before and I want to know more. And clearly it matters to you. So tell me, tell me more about it. And she did. And the piece was great. And like, that's the thing. If you don't see it out there, don't think it's because no one wants to hear about it. Think, recognize that it's just that no one else has yet and be fearless about it. Yeah. Every site is going to run the X year, you know, anniversary for Y movie. And I, I was going to say uh, Marissa Mirable, who is another writer that we all know, I think like does a tremendous job mm-hmm. of that stuff. And every time I read one of her pieces on an anniversary piece, like of course it has the SEO title, but then you dig in and you realize that like, you know, she finds that gear and she finds that way to talk about those movies in a in a whole new light and still using the SEO grab. It's just, yeah, there is such an art to that. And there's such an art to like doing that the right way. And I think uh, teaching, teaching people how to get there is the best thing an editor can do. And one of the hardest, and honestly, the hard- oh, that's yeah. tough. Well, you know, if, no, if someone, <laughs> if someone doesn't want to hear it, that is a, that's its own issue. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that feels like a very natural segue to talking about this film because then we'll get into this in a little bit too. You know, your relationship to slumber party massacre too, is that you wrote one of those pieces that nobody was talking about. You, <laughs> you did one of like the deep dive kind of like stretch yourself angles on that. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the film. Um, and we're going to, I, I think spoiler alert, we're going to treat this as another rare, uh, both Matt movie, which is going to lead to a, a good conversation. So we'll be back in just a second with slumber party massacre too. Hey there, listeners. Well, guess what? It is a new year, and that means a new set of exciting promises, opportunities, aspirations for the Certified Forgotten crew. Um, We have kind of an exciting mix of things that we're planning on doing over the next couple of months, including some really good guests and some really good articles that we've already greenlit. 
But Donato, I, I know there's a few things on your radar that you're excited to do or that, that you want to do in the new year with Certified Forgotten. So what what uh what's kind of what, what what do you think people should know about? I mean, number one, we will have a new look at some point mm-hmm. this month, next month. I don't I don't know. I actually don't know when, but uh, the process is underway to do a little revamp on the uh, Certified Forgotten website. Did we pay grown up money to maybe have the Certified Forgotten website get kind of a Web 2.0 look? Uh, use my use my my communion money <laughs> sitting sitting in my bank account. <laughs> we did. We're using we're using those big uh, those big publication monies in order to make this happen. So no, sure. that's that's been something we've wanted to do for a while, and it's, we've been looking at it. And I think it's time to uh, give a nice little shine on the website because as much as we can use our template and use you know this everything that we've built our blog with so far, it, it still just looks like me and Monogle built a blog. So we want to kind of get yep. out of that mentality and have a new little fresh coat of paint i guess to say on the website and every time one of the writers that we've had uh, talks about how exciting it is to write for certified forgotten my my reaction is always i want to give you the fucking website that you deserve like the way you're talking about writing for us is so cool i want you to have the kind of thing that you're like fuck yeah this is what my article looks like so we promise we're getting there we're days weeks away from making that happen and then we also have some more people on the $10 tier on our Patreon uh, community, which means that mm-hmm. we'll have a few more people to get some bumpers in here. And it won't be me and Mongol, Mongol doing this for much longer. We just figured at the end of last year, we'll do one. And at the beginning of this year, we'll kind of talk about where we're going and where the site's going as long as the podcast. And yeah, so we'll have some more voices uh, giving us mailbag questions to answer. That's going to be really good. Several of them are personal friends of mine. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Michael exactly and uh yeah i mean everything else we're just looking for is kind of to get back to uh basics in a way and just kind of ground ourselves after (laughs) the last few months have been a wild topsy-turvy whatever it has been (laughs) for i'm sure everybody but uh you know we can travel i don't know i say we can travel again but like i traveled home and then i got sick afterwards so it's like it's been a rough last month especially for me so we're we're looking to get back in 2022 and uh kind of get back to what we were doing get a little back of normalcy i guess yeah if you have ever wondered what it's like to get covid and what that does to your work ethic and focus and all that kind of stuff uh i encourage you to tweet at the autobomb and be like hey man what'd you go through because my friend matt here will tell you all about it i am still struggling for words at times but <laughs> i'm faking it through we're, we're, we're pretty much out of the woods here i think awesome all right well that is it those are our promises to you in 2022 and if we don't deliver you know how to get in touch with us and yell at us so Keep us accountable. All right, welcome back. So, as we've said a couple times already, this week's episode is Slumber Party Massacre 2, written and directed by Deborah Brock. Slumber Party Massacre 2 is a direct sequel to the original 1982 film. The film follows Crystal Bernard's Courtney Bates, the young girl from the first movie, who is now in high school and suffering PTSD from the events of the first movie. Despite a tragic family life, her sister-slash-final girl from Slumber Party Massacre is under psychiatric care, and her mother is barely holding things together. Courtney tries to focus on her band and her extremely supportive boyfriend. But when she begins to have nightmares about a rock-and-roll driller killer, she realizes that she may be far from danger. Not that far from danger. Uh, Ariel, you... So we have a a rule on the show, which is that we try and focus on the podcast for more recent stuff, but we stretch that when we want to because that's the fun part about making rules. So you reached out to us and said, is is there any world, is there any possibility where you can let me come on and talk about Slumber Party Massacre 2 because it has five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes? And we were like, hell yeah, we're doing this. So let's, let's 
let's open the floodgates. Let's let you kind of just gush about a movie that I know is is very important and very beloved to you. What is it about this movie that you love so much? Where do I start? Um, <laughs> I get very excited when it comes to this movie. It's like, is it, you know, the next Jaws? No, it's not. Uh, is it brilliant in its own accidental right? Hell fucking yes. I love this movie because not only is it fun and campy and silly, and not only does it have like a perfect needle drop for a song that never got any real radio play, Tokyo Convertible by Firstborn. Like we need that on vinyl. I'm sorry. What, you know, when will Mondo release the vinyl for Slumber Party Massacre 2? That's what I need to know. Because all those songs need to happen. Even even the songs the band sings that are like super cheesy are just like really fun. And I like them a lot. But it's, I in, initially, um, <laughs> I initially watched these movies, the, the first one and the second one, I tried to get through the third and I couldn't do it. Um, but I originally watched them uh, for, if I'm not mistaken, my former podcast, A Frame Apart. Uh, which I did with my ex, actually. And um, I immediately fell in love with him, with the first one and the, and the second one specifically, because the first one was written by uh, Rita Mae Brown, who was a very famous, albeit controversial, uh, feminist icon and theorist and uh, academic at the time, and still is. Um, and it was you know, intended to kind of buck the notion of the the male gaze it totally demystifies its lead uh it the the villain so you're not getting a michael or a jason you're just getting this random dude in denim who like there's no mystery you meet him immediately you see his face immediately and that's it he's demystified like you've, he's, a he's really, been a really bad runner too we have to throw that out there too no no killer has ever stalked worse than the driller killer <laughs> in the first movie no this is true and then the rest of it is just hilarious. You've got the gender swap between, you know, like the the boys being largely useless and crying and cowering and the girls finding, you know, their good solutions and just grabbing the weapons and fighting and going and doing and, you know, even having their stupid little, you know, conversations about eating pizza because, hey, can't let it go to waste. And, you know, then what we wind up getting with the second one is a completely different approach that my reading of it has always been that it is an analysis of uh, suppressed bisexuality or pansexuality. I myself am am pansexual. So I always kind of watching the movie, all I could see was kind of my own like repressed feelings when I was a teenager and like the way she's looking at everybody, the way she looks at her who becomes her boyfriend um, and like fawning over him and all of these stereotypical, like very girly and very boy boyish things in each of their respective rooms. And then she's around her girlfriends and suddenly the gaze changes and she's looking the, like the, it's clear that the perspective, the point of view is hers, but it's, it's very sexual and very fetishistic, but it's her vantage point. And every single time she starts to think about her boyfriend her mind starts to drift to her friends and then she gets visions of the driller killer. And it's like, she's kind of punishing herself for these feelings. And that was, I I couldn't not see that. That was the number one thing I I could see. And it's basically the main reason why I absolutely love this movie is because we basically manifest our own, we manifest our own villains through 
<laughs> Can you hear Roger scratching himself? <laughs> we manifest our own villains through the suppression of our natural selves and who we actually are. And I mean, I hated myself for a very long time because of how much of that I suppressed in myself and didn't realize that I was suppressing it, but felt wrong somehow for having thoughts or feelings like that. So the idea of manifesting, you know, the destruction of your own life and your own friends through, you know, self-subjugation seems not like actually plausible, but fascinating enough that it's worth exploring. And I think it's mm. so perfectly explored here, even with the vantage, like the different vantage points when they're looking kind of dead on at each other. It's like you're forcing yourself into this this world and this conversation and this way of thinking and this way of being where she's talking to her mother and it's dead on. And it's like, nope, I can be what you want me to be. I can be here and I can be focused. And when she's looking at her boyfriend and it's dead on and it's that same idea of, nope, I can be here and I can be what everybody wants me to be. I can be what you want me to be. I can be focused. And then once that stops and she starts seeing more of the driller killer, you don't get those dead on portrayals anymore. It kind of stops happening after um, she's talking with uh, her girlfriend in the bathroom with the zit. And that's like one of the last times that happens because after that, everything just goes haywire and you get the driller killer coming through and this hyper phallic, hyper stylized weapon. Like the drill was, was phallic enough in the first one, mm -hmm. but now we have the cherry red guitar with all of the spikes. You got all these little penises coming off and the one giant one, like, come on, come on. I mean, I just, I, oh my God, I love it so much. It's like grease on crack. It's, Only gayer. <laughs> I, I didn't know that was possible. It's, <laughs> you know, the, I think part of the reason why, you know, I'm not the target audience years and years and years later in general for 70s and 80s horror. I don't, I don't have the same degree of nostalgia that a lot of horror fans do for especially slashers from that era. But I think what I, what I find most interesting is because, because these things were operating, a lot of these movies were just sort of get made how you can. Mm -hmm. There's there are so many ideas and concepts that sort of both naturally and unnaturally came out of them, and you know I was watched this for the first time um, this past weekend, so I you know I had, I have seen Slumber Party Massacre. I can't say I'm the biggest fan. I appreciate and recognize Ariel all the things that you talked about, but I, I that was a bit lost on me, or like the the distance and you know 40 years of horror films between now and then kind of muted the effect that 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 could have had. Which, which oh my God, that made the, me sad now. Well, yeah, it's, it's been a while. <laughs> which, doesn't, which doesn't mean that, you know, I, I'm right in that. It just didn't hit me the same way. But I, I watched this. I really loved it. I started looking at essays and reviews, and it's a film that's still probably not quite having its moment, although it's almost there. Being on Shudder has probably helped out a lot. And it's just one of those films, like what I admire about good 70s and 80s horror is it supports such a plethora of perspectives. You know, I your piece on bisexuality present in the film Yes, all like reading it, it, it makes sense. It's supported by the text. It's a really good insight that you bring. There are pieces about how it's trauma because obviously the most surface level read of this is, is about trauma, but I've read those mm -hmm. pieces. They're extremely good. They're super supported by the text. It's just, this is a movie where there are at least a dozen different reads you could make about what she's psychologically experiencing, what she is repressing and how that is manifesting itself in her life at the age of 17. And like, they're all fucking good reads. Like all of them, I want to read them all because they're, they're, there's a kernel of truth in all of them. 
And that's the fun thing about getting to do different readings of films like this is that it doesn't, and this is, this is also one of the things that tends to piss a lot of people off is that like, this isn't an empirical truth saying that this is one way you can read a movie doesn't mean this is now the way it must be read. It just means here's one way to think about it. And there are a dozen different ways that you can think about virtually any film. And those two, like specifically thinking about it in terms of trauma, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that it can only be looked at through that lens. Mm -hmm. it, it also doesn't mean that it can only be looked at through the lens of, you know, this kind of absolutism, you know, look at what you see on screen. That's what you get. There is nothing else. There's... It's all based on what we put into it and also what we get out of it. You know, so the filmmaking process is 50% in the hands of the filmmakers. Other, the other 50% is in the hands of audiences over the rest of time. And that can change. It, it's all the larger converse, conversation about, you know, the audience bringing their own personal, uh, you know, baggage or whatever that is to a film and having that dictate how that they eventually read it. I mean, you know, until you wrote your piece, I, I had not seen that angle on it. And I had not thought of that angle because every time I watched it, I was, I was very in the trauma camp and I was very in the camp of watching Courtney, you know, manifest this sequel villain to a killer that, that basically spawned these unintentional ripple effects. And, you know, the way we look at trauma and how this character was kind of just there in the first film uh, and, you know, mm -hmm. observing and just seeing things happen. Um, and that's bad enough to like, you know, lay the seeds in her and all of a sudden we have a sequel now because that's how trauma works and like trauma is spread through these things and we have to basically look at the first driller killer and it's not just about the few girls she murdered it's about all the effects that go on after that so it's like that's where my mind always resided on summer party massacre too and then it's like you read that piece and someone else brings their own personal touch to it and you're like yeah i like i literally see this movie in an entire new light because when i rewatched it then i was picking up on all those cues like then i was picking up on everything else after that so like that the idea that a film can only be read one way is the most outdated, stupid thing I've ever heard, you know? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, completely. And I think that's part of what makes uh, film analysis so much fun is that you can do a reading of it. And that's just it. You're reading it. That's all it is. You're not rewriting it. You're just reading it. So calm down, film bros. Criticism. Okay. Yeah, criticism <laughs> is about conversations and it's thing we say over and over again. It's not you know, when I write a film review, am I giving you my take? Yes. Am I giving you what I think about a film? And yes. But do I think that's the be all end all and that every other review is like garbage and not worth reading? Like, no, not at all. Because that's, well, I mean, you know, but no, I mean, like, it, it'd be insane for me to put my review out there and be like, this is the only one you have to read. Like, that is crazy. Like, I hope you read mine. And I hope you take what I see. And like, are able to analyze the film on that level. But I also want you to go read other people's like positive and negative. Like there's nothing better than reading a negative review and walking away going, this is going to be huh. a movie made for me. Like this is going to be my exactly. favorite movie. <laughs> oh yeah. There are a number of those that where where that's happened. And I've seen really thoughtful, profoundly negative reviews of films that have otherwise been like completely just praised endlessly. Mm -hmm. And I will, um, I will actively seek those out because I want to know, okay, if this is a writer I respect, whose work is very, very good, um, whether or not we agree most of the time, I want to know what their food for thought is. Just gives you more of a perspective on everything. There's nothing mm -hmm. bad about that. It's all win. 
and like I'll tie it back to Silver Friday Master Two really quick, so we can get like back to that conversation. Sorry, but oh, no, the, no apologies. I, I was continuing that that train of thought, but I mean, you know, I watched uh, both Summer Party Massacre and Summer Party Massacre Two with Amelia, and like those movies are not for her, and that is a thing where I'm even to get I'm I'm getting that level of analysis from somebody who it doesn't work for completely. And again, seeing exactly why, because like Slumber Party Massacre 2 is everywhere. Like the manifestation angle, all of these things that are thrown in, it is taking such big swings and whether they work Huge or not. Swings. Yeah, exactly. Like they, whether they work or not is almost indistinguishable. It's just how much you enjoy the craziness that happens. Like once the rockabilly 50s greaser rock and roll god comes out and starts mm-hmm. slashing people away, like the continuity is crazy. Everything's crazy about it. But that is the analysis angle on these films. Like Summer Party Master 2 is just everyone is going to have their own reaction to it. And I I mean, I adore it. Like I can say that outright. Like I, I think it's it is weird, campy, musical, insane slasher. That is my world like that. That is the movie I want. And on a rewatch, I will say I do wish um, our driller killer came a little earlier into the uh, film. Ooh, but no, oh, hard no. disagree. No, hard, hard, hard disagree with you. I, I wish. We had more time with that level of campiness because the begin sorry, let's say the first half of the movie was a little slower than I remembered. Huh. Donato, come on, don't make me don't make me yet again defend the slow section in a No, 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 this is your thing, Monogle. Monogle, this is up to you. Let's go. Well, I mean, I I wanna I wanna give Ariel a chance to weigh in too. I, I will say that that part of what I like about this movie is how determined it is to not be a horror movie for so long. Like if you mm. stripped out the dream sequences, you would have 50 minutes of just kind of an enjoyable, you know, woman dealing with her with a little bit of like childhood trauma, but also like getting to know her friends, building connections, like finding herself, overcoming uncertainty in her life. It's I, I, the thing that I always say with slashers and the reason why I'm very picky about the slashers that I do and don't like, and, and why I mentioned when, before we started recording that this year, having watched my bloody Valentine, and this, I feel like I've locked in at least two more slots in my top five, is there has to be a sense of loss when people die. You have to have a sense not only of your loss to the character, but the character's loss to each other. A lot of mm-hmm. films don't take the time. They, they might make you care as an audience member. They might make the, you know, pretend that the other characters care. But like, if you spend the time to to build empathy within your characters, knowing that some of them are going to die, and you spend time to build empathy with your audience... Like I, I mentioned in the intro that her boyfriend is incredibly supportive. And there's a line where he, she says, oh, you must think I'm so weird. And he says, I think you experienced a really bad thing when you were little. I think it's kind of resurfaced this weekend. And I think you're having trouble dealing with it. I was like, when the fuck did this movie come out? That would be like a good line in a 2021 you know, horror film for like the supportive mm-hmm. significant other. So I think you need all of that because then when things go into fantasy slash projection land at the end, um, that's when, you know, quote unquote, the fun can start, but like the meat and potatoes for me, you know, I'm, a, I love my trauma. The meat and potatoes for me is watching her deal with this with her group of friends and, and building something fragile, but something that could the last, um, if she is allowed or allows herself to have the chance to pursue that, like that okay. makes the driller killer stuff so much fun later. And I'm in agreement with you on this one. Cause like, I think that you need it. <sighs> I hate, I both hate and love saying, you know, like you have to earn it, but like you kind of have to earn it. Like it doesn't have the same, the camp factor and the intensity of the camp factor doesn't have the same impact if it's not built up to the way that it is. And at the same time, this isn't, you know, again, 
as much as I love this movie, it is not a very good movie. Like there are a lot of problems with it. And in terms of, and pacing is one of them. There are problems with the pacing. There are problems with some of the editing. There are, uh, oh yeah, some of the, the continuity is way off in a lot of places. Like it's, it's imperfect, but it's so committed to its imperfections that it actually winds up working perfectly. So it doesn't matter ultimately, but you need that buildup. You need kind of that, that buildup of tension, but even uh, Monaco with you saying, you know, like if it wasn't for those dream sequences, then you wouldn't know it was a horror movie, but you do have those dream sequences. Mm -hmm. And those dream sequences are a key integral part of the plot. Not only that, you have that dead bird at the very beginning. Is it a dead bird or was it like a decapitated dead. doll? Uh, I don't a remember. Dead bird. Yeah. Yep, yep. Dead bird. Yeah. Okay. Well, dead bird. You have your you have your omen. The dead bird is the Casey Becker of the film. And then it's like, oh, okay, this is what we're getting into. Awesome. Cool. Let's keep going. And then you just, you know, move along. But it does it does this thing that I, I loved, which is and you know, I, I think something I think of as a pretty contemporary horror thing is it shows her friends trying and not being able to support her in the way that they want to. Like they know mm -hmm. she's going through something. And even the ones that are like, you meet them and you're like trying to code horror film archetypes and be like, oh, there's the like, there's the promiscuous one. And there's like, the, you know, there's the one the that's going to die for exactly that. And yet in their own ways, each of them has a scene where they like try and nobody, nobody makes fun of her except for the asshole boys. Like everybody's like, she's going through something and they're like, I'm 17. I, I can't like whatever she's going through right now. I, I can't do it. So I'm going to tell her to go like take a bath because that's kind of like the one bullet I have in my gun is be like, go take a bath. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a kind and sweet way of having your characters. You know, a lot of horror doesn't, it spends the entire movie gaslighting the, the lead in most cases, actress who's basically like, oh, there's a killer. And everybody's like, oh, you're dumb. And then they all die. This movie, they're really trying, man. They're trying to meet her. They're trying to understand it. And they can't. And it's sweet. And it's funny. And it's sort of sad in its own way. Yeah, man, I love this film. Yeah, right. And that's also something that I related to a lot was that you don't, that isn't something that you get a lot in, in slashers, let alone with teenagers in general, as that, that, uh, that element of empathy. I really mm -hmm. wish that that one dude, the I don't even remember his name. It's not worth. It was the hamburger guy who like throws her into the pool. Oh, TJ. That's TJ. Yeah, that TJ. fucker. That that dip fuck needed to be the first one to die. Sorry, but he did, and he wasn't, and that makes me mad to this day. Yeah, but he yes, I out, called him a dip fuck. I don't know he, what that is, but he went out pretty poorly. So uh, you gotta. Yeah. He did not. He did not show. He did not have a a good moment for himself in the end. He died bad. No, this is true. It's yeah. no worse than well, any other kills, though. I, I think he, he just gets kind of slashed across the uh, chest after getting one to the thigh or sorry, you know, somewhere yeah. on his leg. And it would have been nice to see a, a little little more uh, equivalence kill to the the uh, trauma he's imposed upon other people in the mm. entire film. That would be nice. But I mean, I guess, well, I, have... I guess, you know, to your point there with those, quote unquote, like, you know, slower starts uh, that I might have referenced, th there are things thrown in there that still make me you know, jump back and laugh at certain points. There's a lot of food-based horror, which is funny for some reason. Yeah. Like, like Ariel just said, the, the hamburger, like this overly sized fake prop hand just like in a hamburger and she like chucks the hamburger and they make a joke about it having too much ketchup because obviously she is seeing the hand there. And also the attack chicken, like she opens the fridge yeah. and the chicken comes out and starts like spewing this black bile at her and like, it, it's just every, the manifestations of how the horror creates in the first, uh, well, again, we'll, we'll go first half because like the first half of the movie is that slower, more dreamlike state. And um, just the ways that it does come out are so curious to me because, again, like 
all this heavy emphasis on like food and horror and then you you do the zip moment which is gushing again like yellow liquid Perfection. right out of her face it's mm-hmm. it's so interesting and so funny um and, and then if we want to get down to like horror love of course the officers names are kruger and Voorhees, and they're misspelled mm-hmm. by a single word also what's hilarious to me uh the guy that answers the door and he just yells out like you damn kids is credited as Mis- <laughs> his name is mr damn kids like that's literally just what they named him because that is the kind of that's the approach this movie is taking. If we're talking about campy, we're talking about the things that matter. They care so little about those joke moments because they know they're just jokes that they go full force into all the other stuff in the world building elsewhere. And like, you know, that is all leading us to the driller killers appearance. One of the greatest horror villains. I, I think we can all agree on. Hands down. Yes. Yes, we can. <laughs> well, I, I had two questions that I wanted to ask, um, but one of them was about the Driller Killer. So I need, I'm going to ask Donato, since this is like the most your jam fucking ever, uh, rock and roll, like camp, oh, yeah. you know, musical horror bad guy. How are you not, how is this, how, how is Demon Wind your your 1A how- and it isn't the Driller Killer that's your 1A? Because this guy was fucking made in a lab for you to fall in love with. I agree. And I, I think that goes back to my comment beforehand where I wish we had a little more time with him. Um, because if we're if we're saying Demon Wind, you know, Demon Wind to me is start to finish. Every part of that package is batshit bonkers crazy. And I'm along for that ride for the entirety. I like Slumber Party Massacre to a good deal. Um, it's just if we're com- it, that comparison comes about, like I, I, I don't get enough time with my Driller Killer. But um, Atanas Illich is going so above and beyond to play this, you know, again, I go back to Elvis and like the greaser stuff. Cause he's like dressed in leather. He's absolutely got the hair going on the pompadour a little bit. And the way that he works that guitar as like a super sleazy frontman showman. Um, and he's like, you know, he's just like dancing around and like thrusting with the guitar, like right in the face of the like, girls that are screaming as like they're running away. Um, like again, a funny comment that Amelia made during the watching of summer party master two is like, did they just dead ass stop this movie so he can have a musical number? And I'm like, no, the movie's yes. still happening because the girl is still <laughs> running away. He has just decided to pursue her in a dance number out of some rock and roll musical opera. Like that is commitment to a bit that is so above crazy. And it creates this wonderful little tonal blend where you are watching something that is upbeat and like let's buzz is such a good song and like a fun song for it an eighties horror mm-hmm. tie in. But you're listening to it and you're getting excited about a musical number while a girl is getting graphically like mauled and like drilled through. So that kind of duality and that kind of tonal mindfuck we'll go with is something that this movie does so very well and other movies try. I mean, they do it again where the whole chase in the um, halfway built skeleton house is again this upbeat like summer vibes, rocky, rocky song above everything. But he throws a girl off the freaking like literally throws her into her death at one point, And it still has that like ho-hum happy vibe. And you're like, oh, this is weird. Like, <laughs> this is weird in a good way. And like, it really messes with you. <laughs> All right. That was question number one. Question number two is for Ariel. Um, oh. We I, I, I don't think we can overstate just how much women were not writing and directing slashers in the 1980s. Like Deborah Brock is a. Like to say that she's that that she's the exception that proves the rule is just like that that doesn't even do it justice. So, 
you made a big point of talking about how the original film, the presence of a female screenwriter, you know, subverted the male gaze and and reworked what we consider for those characters. What do you think having um, a woman writing and directing this movie allows it to do that it wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, other than everything, of course, but, you know. Well, I mean, even just, I think it was one of the things that I also wrote about in my piece on Slash Film was that, you know, the, the, the whole pillow fight scene that could, if it was written by a man, would be hugely fetishistic and from a predatory standpoint. Instead, and you'll even notice that the boys are outside watching them on the inside. We're not seeing them from their point of view. We're watching them inside from her point of view. The the POV is coming from inside the house, guys. Nice. So like it's, you know, it that alone, if it hadn't been written or directed by by a woman, it would immediately kind of shift the tone. If you knew that. If you didn't know that, then it wouldn't make any difference. But it also means that I think she was more willing to write about certain things, including the trauma aspect, including the supportive boyfriend. That may be one of the reasons why the the characters are the way that they are. And there's only one dipstick in the entire thing. And he's a fucking bro douche. So like that, you know, that, that to me seems like the main thing. But it's all three of the movies were written and directed by women. All three of them. And that was like a whole kind of thing. That's what they were supposed to do. And they were supposed to prove that, you know, there was another way to do this. Like the first one was really just to mock the the presumably only way to do it. For me, the second one is kind of, here's a different way that we can do things. And to me, it also makes me think of like Rachel Talale in with uh, Freddy's Dead. And, you know, thinking about being able to do something that's really off the wall, that's super tongue in cheek, that's really comic-y and cartoony and kind of insane. And I, there are parts of that movie that I absolutely loathe, like Freddy's Dead, but there are parts of that movie that I also think are like low-key brilliant because of the fact that they're so intensely abnormal and not what anybody else was doing at the time. And, you know, then she would later, wait, had she made Tank Girl by this point or would she make Tank Girl after the fact? I don't remember the order of events. But regardless, we get, I think of them as kind of in the same camp, pun partially intended, hmm. as like doing something that men weren't doing because it was, I mean, if analyzing it in real time, if you want to get analytical with it, it was pretty gay. <laughs> like everything that they were doing is super campy and camp is inherently queer and part of the LGBTQIA plus like community. So men at that time wouldn't do it. They were all, you know, writing these serial killers with huge weapons who are like big stalking lumbering things that take up space and are manly men who do manly things like killing naked women. And then you have this. And it's totally different. And the nudity is selective. And the point of view is all from other women. And it's totally different. It's the vibe is is completely different. And it's so much more secure in itself, even if it's not necessarily a better product at the end of the day. That in and of itself makes it a better product. And you can't get that unless, like, theoretically now, it's, it's it'll be, it would be easier to get that from uh, male filmmakers. But you really mostly get that by opening the door to other people and letting them do 
what they what they can do that you can't. General you, not you two specifically. <laughs> well, I, and I mean, you know, we all watch a lot of contemporary horror, and just saying that now, you know, male filmmakers should have everything they need to kind of get around those preconceptions and the outdated tactics of the eighties and seventies, but they still don't. I mean, we all watch no. a ton of horror. Like it, it, there's still a lot that thinks the same way and just acts the same way. And whether that's, you know, a slavish commitment to, to the past and trying to really just capture that nostalgia again, uh, or, you know, some real poor, unfortunate soul, just like clinging to those ideas as being best. It, it, it's still a thing that even if you depend on, male filmmakers to do the right thing in these modern moments they they still don't always and that still is important in the fact that like that's why you need somebody else doing it exactly all right last question then <laughs> um or i should say second to last question because we always end talking about the reception of the film um i want to talk a little bit about that ending because there are endings plural because i really just wanted to kind of shout out a writer um that wrote about this i think really well and kind of like locked in so my own thinking of it, because the end, the film ends, of course, with the murder of the driller killer. He gets set on fire and falls off the building. And then she looks at her friend's body. Her friend suddenly pulls an army of darkness and pops up and starts laughing like the driller killer. Then she's in bed and then she's in the insane asylum. And it's a lot. It's it's a lot for, it, it, you know, And but it also, like as we discussed, kind of lends itself open to a couple of different interpretations. There's one writer that, that I really liked, uh, Bella Laura Blondeau, who writes for uh, Screen Queens. She talked about the ending, the last ending in the asylum, all of this sort of being a manifestation um, that Courtney has created. None of it is actually literally real. She said, um, in this interpretation, Courtney is still safe and surrounded by people that care about her. She surrounded herself with supportive people and slept with someone she's learning to trust. Some black backsliding is going to happen. She's going to lapse into depressive episodes and she's going to have to work through her myriad psychoses, but she is safe and she will recover. And I thought that was interesting because for the fact that it, that it, it can feel like a bit of a tacked on ending, it doesn't feel unhopeful. And maybe that's the, the lingering context of the rest of the movie i didn't get like a you know she's really screwed up and this was all kind of a dream vibe so i'm curious where each of you sort of sat on the um on the very ending of the film and, and how you read that especially given all the things we've talked about ariel <laughs> um i definitely don't get the i don't get the this was all a dream vibe for me, it, it's kind of the trauma bleeding into everything else that I see in it in terms of the like the suppression of self and that it basically just pushes her over the edge and and makes her, I don't know if I'd say it makes her insane so much as it just, it breaks her. It breaks her spirit. It breaks who she is because that'll happen. Like I'm, I'm the you guys know and some other folks who are listening to this probably know i i opt for transparency as much as possible and i opt for being honest about things as much as possible even the stuff that's kind of scary and and kind of upsetting to be honest about and i think that is to me like what i see in that is i see the consequences of when you don't do that Least of all, or most of all, I should say, when you don't do that with yourself, let alone others. And I think that's the most important part of it is that if, if you're not going to be honest with anybody else, fine, fuck it. Like you do you, that's fine. But at the very least, be honest with yourself because you're that's who you have to live with for the rest of your life. So if you spend 
and this character has clearly like per my reading of this this character has spent her entire life being alone in a dark room because she can't stand the idea of who she actually is that's no way to live so it'll break you eventually that's always what i took from it and that the trauma from the first film kind of bled into this as now that she's older and she's able to kind of understand it and it kind of tacks onto it. Yeah, I, I uh, think Summer Party Massacre 2, that ending, it really doesn't give you much time to think about it. <laughs> and I think that's the hardest part mm-hmm. about it. It just happens so very quickly in Monogle. You just said four separate endings, let's say, in four separate sequences that they're, themselves could take minutes. But that whole finale really just takes all of a minute, two minutes, and it bl- it like blows through those four things. And by the time we get to the, you know, mental, mental institution and the drill, this like horribly sized, just like not represented correctly drill coming through the floor of like a <laughs> dollhouse that is supposed to be where she's living. Um, that was a dollhouse? <laughs> it just, it doesn't give you enough time to, to be hopeful. I, I think that's what I take away from it. And that trauma aspect and everything Ariel just said, like, I won't really replicate it. I think I just totally agree. Like there's nothing else I can see there more than she has reached her breaking point. This is where she has gotten to. It's obvious that like all her tactics of repressing these things and, you know, even talking to her mom and the mother trying to get her to open up and the mother trying to get her to go see her sister and her not wanting to be anywhere near that. And just being like, it doesn't, it's not in my mind. This is a thing that I don't want to think about. It happened. I just want to move on with my life and never address it again. So it is the cautionary finish it is the cautionary well this is kind of where it gets you if you do this um and you can't escape the driller killer in, in like in that representation you know as much as you've tried to ignore and just hide and bottle away the driller killer is still gonna drill through your mental asylum floor i guess is the metaphor <laughs> hmm. interesting i like that we have such different reads on that um <laughs> i'm also just not hopeful fuck it <laughs> like, yeah no, why, why, why am i the hopeful part one? of it how, yeah, how where come? did that come from, man? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm the, I would think of myself as the pragmatist, but here I am advocating that the ending does not say that she is good, but that she is potentially getting better, even though she's still trapped in her own, um, her own processes. Yeah, I don't know. I weirdly, I think that this, that I would pair this movie with Labyrinth. It feels like Labyrinth Ooh. to me in a lot of interesting ways, like. It's the same sort of journey, and it's it's re- it's both real and not real at the same time. But the only thing that really matters is what she's processing. Um, so, like labyrinth, fascinating, gayer, but is it? <laughs> I don't even know. That labyrinth is pretty gay. Yeah, I, I mean, like, David Bowie's codpiece. Come on, <laughs> David Bowie. David Bowie transcends mere mortal concepts of sexuality. So, I think we can say that, that Slumber Party Massacre Two is pretty gay, and Labyrinth is its own thing entirely. <laughs> Fair. All right, then this is the last question, and I think this will be pretty quick. Um, we always end the show by talking about where does this movie find its audience? How does this movie get the audience that it deserves? And, you know, it is right now on Shudder, which means that it's not something that you have to, like, you know, torrent from some dark alley or order a $50 DVD from Japan in order to watch it. So what I, – and I feel more hopeful about this one hitting kind of a tipping point in pop culture than I do about a lot of the films that we talk about. Like, I think this movie stands a really good chance at being canonized as a slasher classic in a way that a lot of films may never get to, but Ariel, starting with you, like what do you think it takes? And and do you think that this movie has a chance to be like an eighties icon in the same way that a lot of other eighties slashers are? 
I do. Um, I think it's actually starting. I think it's getting its kind of second wind now, or maybe even its first wind, I guess, depending on how you th- how you see things and how it did initially. But um, I think the fact that it's on Shutter means that there is no excuse. If you are debating watching it and you have a su- Shutter subscription, go watch it now. If you don't have a Shutter subscription, you should do that. It's worth it. Trust me. But uh, I may or may not be a little biased, but still. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's going to, if it had, my hope is that it finds its niche in the queer community. Um, I know when I did my interview for the queer horror doc for Shudder, I talked about it because that was around the time that I had written the article and I was like, oh yeah, do you know about this? Check this shit out. And it was something that had never occurred to, to anybody. And for me, this kind of feels now that I have actually finally seen Nightmare 2, um, because it took me until now to do it, uh, I, I would pair the two of them kind of neatly together as these two movies that kind of were made oblivious of their own queerness, uh, but are both super, super queer. And, and like, just that words, it's like flames on the side of my face, but not, it's just, I'm just so excited about the prospect of people getting to enjoy this movie for the first time and, and think about it in as many non-literal ways as possible. Because if you take it literally, it's kind of insane and it's a little hard to watch and it's chaos. But if you don't take it literally and you just kind of have fun with it, man, this movie's a trip. And like, it's a trip worth taking. I will take the more uh, physical, ownable route and say, how does it find its second audience? And as we've said, it's on Shutter, So like that is the first part of most of our conversations. Like how easily available is it? Uh, I mean, I went on Amazon. I rented it. I'm sure it's on Tubi because Tubi is the god of all streaming. Like it all makes sense here. But if we're talking about owning Summer Party Master 2 and, you know, the route that movies of this time have taken to get re- reestablished and like find that new audience, it's usually tied to a vinegar syndrome one of those release labels that really does in like blow out of the water special edition and i mentioned shout factory because in 2020 shout factory put out slumber party massacre one and they released it with a limited edition exclusive driller killer figure and if they aren't doing that for slumber party massacre two if they're not trying to make and a Thomas Illich, like, you know, action figure rockabilly dude to go along with owning the movie itself on like Steelbook or whatever the special edition is like that would sell so well if you're able to pair. Please it, do it. Exactly. Please like, do it. You've done it for the first Please one already. It. You've already taken the first Driller Killer and made it into an action figure, which is <laughs> way less interesting than the rock and roll Driller Killer. Um, I'm fingers crossed that it can get a release on that level because that kind of attention is what this movie needs. It's that it's that last yes. ditch push where we know about it. The horror community knows about it. Um, it's growing in the like mainstream horror community, let's say. But you really need that final um, independent distribution, like special edition push to give it that collector's vibe and be like, no, this is canonized now. This is one of the weird ones you have to see. And you get to own the guitar and action figure of the toy. <laughs> The only thing I'll add to that, Donato, um, because I like what both of you had to say, is that if ever a film deserved its own Evil Dead the Musical or Silence the Musical, (laughs) it is Slumber Party Massacre 2. This would be such a fucking riotously good 
uh, off-Broadway <laughs> musical. And it's such a, like, it's all right there. You don't even need to work at it. And you just need somebody who's willing to gamble on it. I, this would be such a good musical. Um, and I, I the hope The idea that, of that is making me so excited. <laughs> I hope somebody someday somewhere uh, runs with that because this, I would, I would watch, I would fly to, New, I would go to New York to watch this play at like some off-Broadway bar in the middle of like, you know, the theater district or something. I'd love to, I, I think that would be great. Talk to, so if uh, that happens, I was going to say, talk like to uh, Graham Skipper. He was a uh, reanimator of the musical. <laughs> he's got, he's got plenty of ties yep. there. Just there imagine we go. it. There we go. You're like, yo, what about that? And to your Make point, Monagal, you even just made me think of one more. Ariel said it already. Release the damn vinyl. Release the vinyl. Get that out <laughs> yes. there. Like have people actually listening to the songs in the movie. I love the girl rock. I love the um, actual like Ugh. driller killer songs. They all hit their little niche. And, if people could listen to Let's Buzz and just put that on oh their player God. and let that go, mm. I think these are all the elements that make the film so watchable and so enjoyable. So give them to everyone the so they'll watch the movie. Like you're definitely onto something that with the idea of like the merchandising aspect or yeah. like an Arrow video or a Sarah or a Severin release yeah. or a or a or a Shout Factory release. Like just do and like vinyl one, please vinyl, please vinyl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Mondo Waxworks don't care give it to me now please yep please. I'm, I like Illich's performance so much I think I'm a Detroit Tigers fan now so that's kind of <laughs> I'm eat Little Caesars that again <laughs> well that is it for us on this episode um, uh, a hit across the board it's always the most fun when that happens because I feel like we don't get to really gush um, all the time so thank you, Ariel, so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for bringing a movie that that immediately went into my inner circle of slashers, like no questions asked. Yay. I know that Donato did a really great job introducing you, and those two things are keeping you pretty busy. But if you have other projects, if you've got your writing, or if you're sharing pieces by that you've edited that you are really excited about what other people to read, where do people go on social media to follow you? Where's the best places? Uh, I am at Aphis8. A-F-I-S-8 on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I am no longer on Facebook because fuck that noise. And I'm at Aphis period eight on TikTok because some asshole took mine first. (laughs) So I'm the same almost everywhere. Almost, but not quite. And uh, tune in every week for the column that Matt and I share, that Donato and I share on Scariest Scene Ever because we do a lot of fun stuff. And then he makes me watch the, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake and I'm mad at him. So that's fun. <laughs> I wish you could see the face that Donato's making right now. Yeah. Um, Donato, yeah. If, if our listeners would like to see your face more often, where do they go for that? You can follow me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. You can, as Ariel just mentioned, we do Scariest Scene Ever, which you can't see my face, but we can get, get you all spooky and in the mood on Slash Film. <laughs> Every Friday, you can see my face on YouTube on Perry Nemiroff's uh, channel, and we do our little Merry Hour live streams. And outside of that, just I'll let you know where I am on the socials. That's that's the easiest way to do it. As for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Modigal. Um, and I, I, as always, I want to encourage everybody to go to the website, www.certifiedforgotten.com and read some of the really cool horror criticism that we're publishing. Special shout out to the queen of uterus horror, Molly Henry, who has written about Slumber Party Massacre 2 on the site and also uh, provides a very nice link to Ariel's piece at Slashfilm. So if you want to if you want to know if, if this conversation kind of sparked an interest to learn more about this movie, I would say read what Ariel wrote, read what Molly wrote. That's a great starting point, And it'll kind of. It'll, it'll 
just let you know how much there is here, how much there is to mine in this particular text. It's a lot of fun. That's it for us. Ariel, thank you so much for being a guest. We really appreciate you, take, you taking some time out to join us and uh, we'll hope to have you back on soon. Yes, please. Thank you for having me. Donato, you got a lot of options here. How are you going to take us out? That's buzz. Perfect. <laughs>